who's wanted to have your own podcast, but you just didn't know where to start. I know that it used to be me until I uh, was told about Anchor.fm. Anchor FM is one of the best podcasting platforms out there because it's free. They help you with distribution, getting onto all the various podcasting platforms. They have tools for editing and for creating all the podcasts. Uh, and they even have monetization tools. It's a really, really great app and website. I highly recommend it. If you want to get your own podcast going, go and download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I can't recommend them highly enough. So download that free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm so you can get started making your own podcast. But as you explore these truths, you know, with the crisis in the West, with the emergence of totalitarian China, and with singularity in the wings, this is an amazing moment for humanity. And the profound questions are raised about human dignity, truth, words, freedom, justice, you name it, they're all there in the scripture. They're all there in the gospel. So we've got to get people who understand that and are confident in that and are courageous in going out to speak of it. This is an incredible moment for the gospel and the future of humanity. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our chaotic world so that you can face the confusion of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. Before we get into today's episode, I am super excited to announce to you guys and share that we're going to be doing our very first book giveaway here on Filter. I've been so excited with all the amazing guests that we've been able to have on the show over the last year or so. Uh, some really incredible books that we've been able to talk about, share about, and bring to you. And so what I wanted to do is to put a big bundle of these books together and then give them away to you guys. If you want to enter into the contest to win this book giveaway, all you need to do is click the link at the description in this. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, the description below, or if you're listening on podcasts, I'll have the link in the description as well. Uh, just click that link and then it'll take you to the page where you can get signed up to enter this contest. You can enter it in a, a variety of different ways. There are multiple different types of entries that you can do to enter. You can enter more than once. You can get bonus entries for sharing with friends uh, and then really rack up all those different entries to increase your chances to win. I'm going to be giving away 11 books representing different authors that, and, and uh, writers we've hired on Filter uh, that totals up to over $225 in value. So this is going to be a really great opportunity. I encourage you guys and love to see you uh, enter into this context, uh, contest and get to win this book bundle. So make sure that you visit the link uh, in the show description or you can just go directly to my website and you'll see uh, the uh, the option that says contest up in the menu, you can go to it by going to aaronshamp.com and clicking on the link in the menu, or just go directly to it by going to aaronshamp.com slash contest. 
So today's episode is going to be with Oz Guinness. I got to have another conversation with Oz for the show. We got together and talked about uh, his book, The Dust of Death, which was actually his first book that was just re-released by IVP as a part of their signature collection series. This is his book examining the countercultural revolution of the 1960s and, and not analyzing it through a Christian worldview lens and then presenting uh, his own analysis of what he believed uh, would be the reaction and the long-term effects of the counterculture. We had a really great discussion. I enjoyed it. Uh, just to remind you, Oz Guinness is the author or editor of more than 30 books, including The Dust of Death, The Call, Fool's Talk, and The Magna Carta of Humanity. A frequent speaker and prominent social critic, he has addressed audiences worldwide from the British House of Commons to the U.S. Congress to the St. Petersburg Parliament. He is a senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics and was the founder of the Trinity Forum. Before we get into today's episode, let me encourage you, if you haven't yet already, to subscribe to the show on YouTube or whatever podcast platform you listen to so that you don't miss out on any of our episodes and great content like this one that we have coming out for you. Uh, and if you get a lot out of this episode, would you help us out by leaving a rating or review? or by sharing with your friends. That really helps us out. And once again, don't forget about that contest. Go and enter it. Share it with your friends so you can get more entries and hopefully win that big old book bundle. So without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Oz Guinness. Oz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be on with you. Well, it is a pleasure and an honor that you would uh, come back on. You're one of our few repeat guests here at Filter. And so uh, I've, been, I've, been, I've been very excited to get to talk to you again. So thank you so much for joining us again. But today we're going to be talking about The Dust of Death, which was your first book that has been re-released by IVP. And then uh, talking about The Magna Carta of Humanity a little bit, which is your your newest one. And uh, that, that's what we had you on here last time to talk about, but we'll be able to dig into that again. Let's talk about The Dust of Death. This was your first book. You wrote it while you were still in your 20s. Uh, and there's a story, you, an experience that you had that go along with, uh, with the book, what the book came out of. Just tell us about the story behind The Dust of Death. Well, I never set out to be a writer and sort of fell into it accidentally. I came to the U.S. as a visitor and a tourist in the autumn of 1968. And that was a dramatic year. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Senator Robert Kennedy assassinated and a hundred American cities were ablaze. When I was at Berkeley, I met Mario Savio, who led the free speech movement, went to a concert with the Jefferson Airplane and Grace Slick, and Mm. had some fascinating experiences from Harvard to Berkeley and many places in between, including some Christian colleges. But I realized that America was going through a most significant moment I went back, I was living at Labrie then, went back and uh, drew up a series of 10 talks informally on the 60s, the counterculture, because there were books like Theodore Rojak's The Making of the Counterculture, which claimed that the radical counterculture would win. And I just knew, looking at it Christianly, it wouldn't. So I prepared this series of 10 talks and people said, this is fascinating, why don't you write it? And I just brushed it to one side. And then one day, my old English high school teacher came. He'd introduced me to writing essays, to Shakespeare, to debating. And when he said it, I began to take it seriously. 
And as I was thinking and praying about it, I had a tiny little room at the Brie where you could hardly turn around. And I had a bunk bed above the sofa. <laughs> so the bed was only a couple of feet from the ceiling. And suddenly the whole outline of what became the dust of death came to me and I wrote it on the ceiling. <laughs> it's still <laughs> there today. They've wow. kept it. <laughs> but Labrie wow. gave me six weeks to write the book. So it's written at white hot speed. It's not scholarly. I was still in my 20s, hadn't been to graduate school, but it was my first attempt to try and understand what Chronicles calls reading the signs of the times and making sense of this crazy, fascinating world that we're all living in still. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, even though this isn't technically about the book, but just something that I can't help but be interested in, which is your time at Labrie. That's something that I didn't know that you spent time there and that you knew uh, Francis Schaefer until uh, I started reading the book and uh, listening to some of your other uh, other interviews that you've done on it. And I was really surprised to hear that. And as someone who uh, Schaefer has been one of the biggest influences of my life hmm. uh, and, and thought, I just can't help uh, but, but chase this rabbit trail a little bit. Just tell us, how did you come to Labrie? What, how much time did you spend there? What did you do? And uh, what was it like working with uh, Francis Schaefer? Well, the background to that, I came to faith in 1960. And before that, I've been fascinated with people like Albert Camus and people like that. Then I came to faith and I was at London University and we had wonderful teachers at the University Fellowship, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, hmm. many of the greatest voices in English Christendom, but they had nothing to say about the world outside, the culture of the 60s. Hmm. And here we were in swinging London, the free speech movement, films by Ingmar Bergman and Fellini, and they didn't address it at all. And it was almost schizophrenic. And then I came across, recommended by a friend, this funny little man wearing Swiss knickers with a goatee, mm -hmm. and he connected all the dots. And I was so fascinated that he understood both theology and the 60s and the background culture, that I decided to go out there. And my first two weeks at Labrie, you know, the 60s term mind-blowing, well, this was truly revolutionary in my thinking. The idea that you could think freely about anything and everything under the Lordship of Christ, and that you could really try and discern what Chronicles calls the signs of the times, or our Lord calls the signs of the times. So it was at Labrie that I got that vision to a, a, a faith that is engaged and seeking to discern where we are and live faithfully in the light of where we are. Yeah. And what was Schaefer like in person? Well, he was a fascinating little man. He was not a scholar. I rarely saw him read a book apart from the Bible. He read magazines and the whole. He wasn't a scholar, often wrong in some of his ideas. But I would say the secret of Schaefer, and I lived with him and his wife for three years in their home. Wow. Um, he loved God passionately. He loved people passionately. And he loved truth passionately. You know, you, he, he wasn't the greatest preacher in the world compared, say, with uh, John Stott or no, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Mm. But almost every sermon, there's a moment when his voice breaks. He's overcome 
with the awe of what he is saying about the Lord or Christian truth. Or when he talks to people, you can see him, Aaron, his eyes would, after a couple of minutes, you could see he wasn't aware of it. His eyes would well up with tears. He was so empathetic, sympathetic, getting into people's stories. And while he could laugh and joke with the best of them, and I've often seen him rolling on the floor with laughter, you know, when it came to truth, you might say of Schaefer, as Nietzsche said of himself, all truth is bloody truth to me. You didn't play around with truth. It mattered. Mm. So those are the sorts of things I learned from him. You know, when people came to faith and we had people, always there were a third, sometimes even half of Labrie who were seekers, angry protesters over Vietnam, people going to Eastern ashrams and searching. And whenever one of these came to faith, which was quite often, Schaefer would take his old battered music system and put it in the window and play the Hallelujah Chorus out over the Rhone Valley. And it was magnificent, rather like It's a Wonderful Life, you know, an angel getting wings. You knew another person had come to the Lord. Huh. Wow. That's incredible. What, what a unique opportunity, a fantastic opportunity that must have been and, and an incredibly formative time. And so it, it was in this period of your life that you got to come to America and, uh, and, and experience American culture, experience the 60s counterculture, and then led to the inspiration for this book. What were some of the uh, most unique experiences on that trip that, uh, that stuck in your mind and in your soul that made you start, uh, that made this message start to come out of you and, and form in you? Well, my first impressions, nothing to do with the message, but I'll never forget coming into Kennedy Airport looking down on Long Island and the area around and the incredible opulence of all the swimming pools and so on. And my first weekend, I was invited to a friend's home in Greenwich, Connecticut. And the incredible classical historical opulence of it all, I thought, my word, what a country we're in. Now, I was quickly disillusioned because my second weekend was in Detroit, and we were there the weekend after the Tigers had won the World Series, and the place was thick on the ground with ticker tape. Um, so I saw a lot of different parts of America, but probably it was California and going through Haight-Ashbury, going through Berkeley. I begin the book, there were beggars in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. uh, talking to Mario Savio with his experiences of the free speech movement. It was things like that. I began to realize that America really was the bellwether for so much of the advanced modern world. And to understand America was absolutely essential for anyone who wanted to understand faith in our modern world. And a, a point that you make with uh, the re-release of this and, and can you, continuing to speak on the message is that understanding the 60s is, un, is key for understanding where we are today. Why is it? What, what is the connection that makes understanding the 60s so important and the key for understanding where we're at today? Well, that's why my first book and my latest book, The Magna Carta of Humanity that you mentioned, are actually very, very close. Because it was about the time that I was there that Herbert Marcuse, who was the godfather of the new left, writing and speaking from the University of San Diego, he called for notions like 
repressive tolerance, you know, which are behind the cancel culture and the speech codes today. But more importantly for my book, he called along with Rudi Deutschke in 1968 for a long march through the institutions. Now, that was significant because we'd seen, think of last year, 2020, though a lot of fires and riots and so on, above all in Portland, but nothing like 1968. As I said earlier, 100 cities were ablaze. But here's the point. The radicals of Marcuse knew they wouldn't win in the streets. So he called for a long march through the institutions. In other words, not the streets, but win the colleges, universities, win the press and the media, win what they call the culture industry, Hollywood and entertainment, and then sweep around and win the whole culture. Mm. Rather like Mao Zedong did in the original Long March in China in 1934. And of course, we're now 50 odd years later than that, and you can see they've done it. Now, Marcuse, of course, in my new book is more about that. It goes back to the ideas coming down from Gramsci and the Frankfurt School. And later on, it ties in with postmodernism. And then in the early 2000s, with the super funding of people like George Soros. So 68 was a very important year. You know, for me, it's a tragedy. Let's say you take this year, 2021. Many Christians and many conservatives are suddenly caught up, say, with critical race theory, CRT. Mm -hmm. But they have no idea. It goes back far earlier than Derek Bell at the Harvard Law School. And it goes back through Marcuse, you know, all the way back through the Frankfurt School to Antonio Gramsci. And we've got to wrestle with that and really understand it because it's a fundamental threat to the gospel and to the church and to the West. Mm. Yeah, so while we're on the subject of critical race theory, like you said, it is that is a hot topic right now. I became aware I became aware of it right before I think it it really exploded uh, in terms of being one of the forefront conversations we're having in the Christian world and but then also in the the culture beyond. So so while we're on the subject, and it is something that you tackle in the later chapters of the Magna Carta of Humanity, and, and the way that you approach it, how do you approach? CRT in terms of evaluating it? What are your criticisms and how do you try to help Christians think through it? Well, let's remember it's much earlier and wider than critical race theory. So you've got critical women's studies, critical queer studies, critical fat studies, you know, mm -hmm. all sorts of things across the board. So Occupy Wall Street is a fruit of it, as well as Antifa and Black Lives Matter. But when it comes to justice. That's the central issue. It's rather different from freedom. If we look at freedom, the biblical, the Jewish and Christian view is virtually unique. In other words, when we're looking at pagans like the Egyptians, the Babylonians, or even coming down to the Greeks, no freedom, fate, the stars. But what's remarkable even that modern secular thinkers have no grounding for freedom. So you look at Bertrand Russell, or B.F. Skinner, or J.B. Watson, or Richard Dawkins, or Sam Harris. You know, freedom is an illusion. Mm -hmm. So there's no grounding for freedom that's solid apart from the biblical. But when it comes to justice, that's not so. Almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone agrees with injustice. You take a kid of three saying, that's not fair. 
In other words, the cry against injustice is almost universal. But the difference comes not in responding angrily to it or outraged. The difference comes in how to address it. And that's so important because many, including, I would say, some of your generation, Heron, mm. they've drunk the Kool-Aid. You know, if you look at the radical left and read their material, what they do is analyze the discourse, as they say, looking out for the majority, the minority, the oppressor, the victim. And when you found the victim, whoever it is, it's not the individual who counts, it's the group. You weaponize the group. And remember, no God and no truth, importantly, so without the Lord and truth, there is only power. So once you weaponize the victim, you set up an attempt to subvert and overthrow the status quo as a power conflict. And that's all it is. And the end result is what the Romans call the peace of despotism. In other words, you have a power unrivaled that can put down all other powers. And that's basically authoritarianism, which in an advanced modern form becomes totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. So the way of the left, they're right to be outraged, but totally wrong they do it. And among other things, you know, Douglas Murray in his book, The Dangerous Madness of Crowds, points out the left is merciless. So what you have in the radical left is no truth because of postmodernism, no freedom because of naturalism and secularism, and no mercy because of neo-Marxism. Now, you compare the gospel way. I, I, let me use single words, but unpack each of them in 20 minutes, the fullness that they mean. We address truth to power, calling for repentance, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. Now, you could expand on each of those, but that is truly good news, and the alternative is truly bad news. And America mm. has to decide. And the tragedy for me is how many young Christians, young evangelicals, have drunk the Kool-Aid, and they're just spouting Black Lives Matter slogans and so on, not realizing that the stable they come from is cultural Marxism. Mm. Yeah, just as you were speaking, I... I... And 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 describing the differences between uh, these these two different ways of uh, confronting injustice and and how different they are the uh, neo Marxist way or CRT way however you would like to put it and the Christian way just as you're explaining that in in the phrase that you briefly used uh, speaking truth to power just how that phrase takes very different meanings depending on which one of those uh, starting points we come from. Because I find that uh, young people, my generation especially, uh, loves that phrase saying, speaking truth to power, both whether they're Christians or not Christians, but it means very different things. Because as you said, from a Christian worldview, speaking truth to power means calling people to repentance. Uh, we, it means speaking a truth based in the objective reality of the God who is there, like Schaefer would say. And because he is there, then uh, they're ultimately accountable to him. And what he says is just, but I think whenever, um, with the way that our society uses that phrase today, speaking truth to power, what it really means is making a public accusation that incites a social media mob, and then the mob bends the person into their submission. 
Exactly. No one's addressing power to power. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as the Jews put it, if guilt is not resolved, you either have a massive accumulation, wrongs leading to more wrongs and action to reaction and so on, like a Corsican blood feud, or you have a basement, someone just bows to the powerful, they have no alternative, or appeasement, you try and buy them off for one reason or another. Now, you compare those three things. I call them the three, the trio of bad A's, accumulation, abasement, appeasement. Compare that with the biblical view, atonement. For the Jews, Yom Kippur. For Christians, the cross. But you can see that America's deepest crisis is met with the most profound answers of the gospel at the moment. So mm. Christians need to remember that the gospel is not simplistic. And it's not purely personal. It's, of course, it's personal. But it addresses also the nation's greatest wounds and challenges. Now, I love the fact, you go back to truth to power. One of the mysteries of history is why there isn't more complaint, outrage against abuse. And mm. the first great sustained voices are the Hebrew prophets. And, of course, it's all in the light of the Genesis Declaration that humans are made in the image and likeness of God. So to mistreat someone made in the image and likeness of God is an insult to their creator, their maker, the Lord himself. So we have a high standard for which to stand for justice, and we have a magnificent heritage. And I, you know, the greatest reformers, social reformers, you take Bartolome de las Casas, in the 16th century, his stuff is, you know, against the conquistadores. It's some of the earliest human rights language, where you take William Wilberforce and his generation. We are the heirs of these great reformers. So we need, on the one hand, to criticize or be much more critical about neo-Marxism and where it leads to. On the other hand, much more proud and grateful of the great tradition that we stand in and represent our Lord again today. Mm, absolutely. In your book, you argue that, uh, or well, in your book, but then in the new edition, you argue that we're, uh, we're all children of the 60s now. And, and I think what, what you're saying by that is that, uh, like you said earlier, that the long march through the institutions was successful. And so now we're seeing the fruit of that effort. Uh, but what are these parallels that you to help people understand that assertion that we're all children of the 60s? What are a couple of the parallels and, and the, the, the key points you can, you can identify uh, starting in the 60s and what we see happening now so that people, especially younger people, people, like you said, in my generation, can, can see this? Well, again, let me broaden that, Aaron. I, I say our greatest challenges you could represent in colors. You've got the red wave. In other words, both classical and cultural Marxism. And they are completely opposed to the church and the gospel. So Solzhenitsyn used to say that the animosity to God and faith is as deep in the radical left as their politics and economics. And we've got to understand it. It's a genuine hatred of the gospel. And then you've got, this isn't our topic this morning, but you've got the black wave. 
And by that is what's meant in the Middle East, the radical Islamism set off by the Iranian Revolution in 1979 and things like the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Now, they always talk about Israel as the little Satan, but understand who is the great Satan, Christendom and the West and America in particular. Mm. But then you've got, let's be clear about this, what I call the rainbow wave. In other words, if you look at the sexual revolution, people blame it on the 60s. You know, Hugh Hefner, Playboy magazine, permissive lifestyles, and the invention of the pill. No, no, no. It goes back to the same quarter in Paris as the political revolution in the Palais Royal. And if you look at the early architects of the sexual revolution, from the Marquis de Sade to Wilhelm Reich, Reich, for example, he openly says, we are out to subvert 3,000 years of civilization. Hmm. And we have two enemies we must overcome. Think of this last year. One, parents. That's why they want sex education at three and four. You've got to sideline parents. And now even the attorney general of the U.S. talking about parents protesting as domestic terrorists. This is incredible. Mm. Yeah. Parents. But the other one, deeper still, the church. So we've got to be clear. The sexual revolution is out to subvert the church. You think, say, of the extremes of transgenderism. God has created people like this. And they say, no, everything's socially constructed. What's constructed can be destructed. So there are no givens and freedom is whatever you want, regardless of your bodies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're up against something extremely radical and very much opposed to us. And we need to understand it very clearly. Now, the irony is, you know, I'm an unreconstructed evangelical. I define it theologically despite all the tarnishment of the uh, political nonsense today. But if you look back, evangelicals resisted theological revisionism, liberalism, wonderfully well for 200 years. But we've caved in to the political revolution, neo-Marxism, and we've caved in to the sexual revolution in an unprecedented way. And the chaos among evangelicals, and sadly, particularly your generation of evangelicals you know, is lamentable mm -hmm. yeah the the solution or positive message that you put forward in the dust of death is something that you call christian realism uh is is key a key element in your uh evaluation of the 60s counterculture and it's the reason that you point to for why uh the message of this book has stood the test of time can you explain for us what is Christian realism, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, last night I was at dinner here with a, several people, but one of them, a very eminent, well-known pastor. And he said, discussing the present situation, I am a total pessimist. Hmm. Now we had a friendly argument. I think that's wrong for Christians. I think we should be realists with hope. In other words, look reality in the white of the eye. No Pollyannaism. Things are in bad shape, and we should understand the bad shape they're in and where they've come from and so on. So I, I, I believe in total realism, and I think all my books are profoundly realistic. Some people <laughs> say they get a little pessimistic after reading it, but I am always hopeful. 
So you take America's current problems or the Western problems. The answers are in the scriptures and in the gospel. High view of human dignity, a strong view of truth, a powerful view of words. And then, of course, things like freedom and justice and community. We have distinctive, deep, rich views that are the precise answer to humanity going forward. So if ever the gospel was good news, it's now. And so Christians should get off the back foot, insecure, defensive, and really move out. This is an incredible moment. So I hope I'm always realistic, but I hope I'm equally always a person of hope because of the Lord and the gospel. Absolutely. And that's a good message that we need to be reminded of, uh, that we need to be realistic, yes, uh, but then remain hopeful always, because uh, as long as God exists, and as long as he reigns, we have hope. That makes me think of, uh, to go back to Schaefer, uh, in A Christian Manifesto, he has a couple of chapters about the open window and the close, or closing window, where he says, you know, that there is these, there's an open window of opportunity for the church and for evangelicals to uh, to move and to uh, be obedient to God's calling uh, on our lives, not just in the private sphere, but also in the public sphere as well. Uh, but he argued that the window might be closing soon. So I, I assume that what you're saying is that the window is not closed, but it may be closing. Where do you think that we're at in that process in terms of how open is that window and the opportunities that we have before us? Now, I can't remember when he wrote that book. Was it 81? 81. Now, if you think what's happened since 81, on the one hand, the culture has declined and degenerated rapidly. And the things we've seen in the last five years would have been unthinkable to Americans when I first came here. I mean, there's a madness mm. and a folly and an insanity that it, it would have been unbelievable to an earlier generation. On the other hand, the saddest fact is the church too is in profound disarray. The divisions, the uncertainties, the defections, the massive scandals we've seen in the last year alone, you know, the problem is us. So things are worse on both fronts, but the door's never shut. And I think there's still an extraordinary moment. I mean, I, as you know, in the book, Aaron, one of my calls is for leadership. You know, the difference between America today, deeply divided, as divided as at any time since just before the Civil War, is that in the 1850s, you had a Lincoln. And he believed in the Declaration, which Martin Luther King called the promissory note. He believed in what he called the better angel of the American nature. And he addressed the evils in his day, slavery, you know, in the light of that. We've got no, no Lincoln today. Now, I know the biblical view of leadership is not just the people at the top or out in front. It's people who take responsibility for what's in front of them in their own sphere at their own level. And that includes mm. all of us. Yeah. This is a moment for Christians to take the initiative, to take responsibility, but we've got to do it Christianly. And the mm. toughest thing our Lord gave us so tough that the Jews don't even agree with it, is our Lord calls us to love our enemies. Mm. And the church is not responding Christianly 
in the way it's stepping forward today. So often then we're tarnishing the Lord's name all over again. Yeah. So if you were to, though this book has, in its message has stood the test of time. If you were to rewrite it today, what would change in your rewriting? Though the core of the message wouldn't change because you you stood by it in your preface, you you are are proud of how well it stood the test of time. I think you should be proud. Uh, But you do mention a couple of ways that you would maybe just change the approach that you took in writing the book. What, what, What would that change be? Well, it's easier to say with hindsight what you changed. Now, when I mm-hmm. wrote it, many of the radicals and many other commentators thought the counterculture would succeed. So my book, which describes the rise and fall of the counterculture, was actually against the tide. Now, looking back, that's obvious. It did rise and did fall. Um, but there are things, I mean, for example, at the very innocent level, in those days you talked about man with a capital M, Nowadays, we're much more sensitive, men and women, he and she, and so on. But more importantly, although that's important too, um, in those days, I was aware through Schaefer and through my undergraduate work of what's called the history of ideas. So I followed almost exclusively the movements in ideas. And many Christians can recognize relativism or secularism or whatever it is, the ISMs. Mm-hmm isms and ologies. Mm-hmm. But through my graduate work and through coming to know the great Peter Berger, I became to realize what modernity means in terms of its structures, in terms of its institutions, and the way that is as much ideas and it shapes our world. And I'm much more aware of that now. So I look at ideas and I look at the broader cultural things too. And many Christians only see ideas. Yeah. Another one that you mentioned was you you said, I'd be more careful today in my use of the notion of a third way. And what do you mean by that? And and why would you be more careful of that notion today? Well, I used that term then because there were two obvious extremes. And the early church called itself and was called by others the third race. And I love that. Obviously, it captured the countercultural element of the kingdom. And when we go right back to Abraham, you know, as the rabbis point out, the first words of the call to Abraham, leave. In other words, break with your country, your culture, your kin. And from then on, we should be separate. That's the meaning of the word holy. I saw a people who lived alone, Balaam says, about Israel. So we should be in the world, but not of the world. We're members of the city of God not the city of man. And we've got to recapture that because the American church is profoundly worldly. Now, in the 60s, worldliness was whether you drank or smoked or played cards and things that were relatively trivial. But now we see it's far more profound. And you can see American pastors seduced by celebrity and things like that. And this is much more subtle and more all-encompassing. And some of my books, like Impossible People, are about problems like that. So, I, you know, having the years in between and graduate school and so on, a much deeper and subtler understanding of the challenge of the world and the culture in which we're in. But let me put another way on. The scandal of the American church. This is the one country in the West where Christians are the biggest community. 
We may not be fully the majority as we used to be. We're the strongest majority in the country compared, say, with most of the Western European nations. And yet we're letting the Lord down. And you have, as I put it, tiny little groups like, say, our Jewish friends. I'm a great admirer of the Jews. They are 2% of America, but they always punch above their weight. Mm-hmm. They're overcomers and overachievers, and intellectually, financially, culturally, their influence is incredible. People we disagree with, like, say, the LGBT people, small percentage of America, but far more influence than we have, and we are called by our Lord to be salt and light. In other words, we're the problem. Mm. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you think it is that's made the church so ineffective though we have though we are a, a far far greater percentage than as you pointed out the jews or other minority groups that punch above their weight well i think there's a terrible deficiency of simple things like discipleship and calling or like <clears throat> what used to be called catechism the idea of handing mm-hmm. on from generation to generation So again, I have in my book, the rabbis cry, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? They're going free after 430 years. He never mentions freedom. They're going to the promised land, promised to Abraham of milk and honey and so on. He never mentions it. He talks three times about children. Now, as the story we tell to our kids is the key to identity, one, and continuity, There's a breakdown. Generation Z in this country has very deficient views of faith and very deficient views, different level, of freedom. The transmission has broken down. The baton has been dropped. Now, these are simple things, discipleship, calling, handing on generation to generation. But we've we've broken down in some of the simple basics. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that one thing that I look at is I, I think that the the American church, especially uh, institutionally, had over the past couple of decades really, really embraced the consumeristic nature of American culture, possibly more than uh, I, I don't know if more than these other groups is, is the right word. Uh, but but it seems as though whenever the church was uh, not turned into uh, an eternal kingdom that is passed on from generation to generation and by the spreading of the gospel and discipleship, when it was changed from a primary understanding of it being that to church being an event or just a program that you uh, send your children off to, or that you go to for, for six weeks or whatever else that uh, that that's when it, it really lost its, its power and uh, efficacy. Oh, I agree with you totally. I've got, stuff in this and several of my books. You take consumerism or you take celebrity, you take managerial notions, you go on down the line or just take, say, the other directedness of likes and followers and polls. The American church is poll directed. Mm. Uh, David Reisman back in the 50s talked about the shift from the Puritans who were inner directed. And he said they were as if they'd swallowed gyroscopes. Whereas the modern church, with polling and all these sort of things, is as if they'd swallowed Gallup polls. You know, I've heard sermons out in the West Coast 
I hastened to quickly say, not Saddleback, but a church where I heard the words Barna says six times in a sermon, and the Bible said once. Mm. And it was uh, just appalling. Mm. The American church is not as biblical as it should be. We need reformation and revival. Yeah. You mentioned several times uh, the cultural divide in our country today, a cultural divide that's certainly in the, the culture, the broader culture, but a cultural divide that even is present uh, through the church. What's at the bottom of the cultural divide in our country today over the just core foundational notions of freedom, justice, and so on? Well, my argument in the Magna Carta of Humanity is the core difference. Those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, which was largely, although not completely, rooted in Scripture. And those who understand American freedom from the perspective of the heirs of the French Revolution. So everything like postmodernism, the sexual revolution, identity politics, multiculturalism, and so on, all of that comes from the heirs of the French Revolution, not the American. And that difference is now, I mean, you look at Congress currently, the squad and things like that. Uh, you know, I, I start the book, the latest one, with a conversation with my father and then later Isaiah Berlin. I was a seven-year-old in the Chinese Revolution. When I was at Oxford many years later, as a graduate student, I discovered Isaiah Berlin, the great Jewish philosopher of freedom, he was a seven-year-old in the Russian Revolution. And in other words, the two big revolutions of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But when we compared notes, we were grateful for the English-speaking stand for freedom against Stalin, Hitler, etc. And neither of us would have dreamed that America, the land of the free, would have any trace of either radical socialism, let alone cultural Marxism. It would have been unthinkable. This was, of course, back in the 70s when I was talking to Berlin. But you can see how far America has come. And that division now runs incredibly deep. Mm -hmm. So I just read the news today, and you have examples of this deep division. Now, the trouble is, as I said, Christians are fighting back. Nothing wrong with that, although the word fight must be in inverted commas, including prayer. But it must be Christianly. And often the resentment and the near violence and sometimes the hatred of Christian responses is an open contradiction of our Lord. Yeah. Do you think that there's a religious root beneath our culture's acceptance today? Like you said, of things that you and Isaiah Berlin would have never imagined, uh, such as socialism and other neo-Marxist ideas. Do you think that there is a, a religious or spiritual issue beneath the surface of these, or do you attribute it to other factors? No, absolutely. Profoundly. I mean, humans are worshiping creatures. And if they don't worship the Lord, they'll worship something else. So you take, say, the Jews. Rabbi Sachs points out that when the Jews reject God, they move from the greatest expression of the Lord, which in one word is monotheism, to an alternative belief, say Marxism or Freudianism, which is almost as big in a secular form. And that's the tragedy of our modern world. Many of these ideas come from Jews who've rejected the Lord. Hmm. And you can go on down the line and see how many of these things have profound 
spiritual roots. So I don't think anything is purely secular. You know, you take World War II and uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, and uh, Simone Weil and W.H. Auden, they would describe what they saw as the rise of secularism then in terms like the beast or the machine. In other words, it's not just ideas. Diderot said the enlightenment in one word is reason. But when you see the spiritual hostility and aggressiveness, we don't want God. You know, Diderot will never be free until we strangle the last king with the mm. guts of the last priest. That is more than just simple reason. And that's what we're up against increasingly. You see it in Europe for 200 years. And now increasingly, we see it in America too. So I think that one of the church's problems in our cultural engagement has been that we have been mostly we've been seeing social and political problems and broadly been trying to address them in it with political means by voting the right person into office, uh, supporting the right other political causes and so on. So that through legislation, we could change the various negative trends that we see in society instead of addressing and seeing what is the primary issue, which is what you pointed out, false worship. Uh, what are some other ways that you would uh, point out has been some bad ways that evangelicals have been doing cultural engagement over the last couple of decades? How, how would you rate our cultural engagement, point out some bad ways and say that this would be the more positive way? Well, where should we begin? <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot, I know. Very simple problem is the Christian world doing so? And so evangelicals, what's amazing, I came, you talked about the 60s in my visit. I didn't meet a single evangelical except for Carl Henry, the one exception, who understood what was going on. Many evangelicals were shocked, lamenting. They were out of it. And the evangelicals slept through the 60s. Why? Well, with our wonderful, I mean wonderful, pietistic background, we had warm hearts but sadly often deficient understandings in our heads and understanding the lack of culture. So evangelicals switch from an overly privatized faith to an overly politicized faith, you know, from pietism to politicization. And that was absolutely disastrous. So you see a lot of evangelicals today, how do they engage public life? They're too politicized. Others are still retreating too pietistically. So I meet evangelicals who say, I, I'm not going to get involved in public life. The early church didn't. Well, that's stupid. The early church had no freedom to engage public life. They were under the Caesar's dictatorship. Whereas the American experiment is based on Exodus. And the essence of Exodus is that everyone's responsible, as the Jews put it, reciprocal responsibility of everyone for everyone. We the people, Americans say. So for Christians to opt out of engagement today is both faithless and bad citizenship. So that's one thing. But take another thing, Aaron, and you've hinted at this. Many American Christians are as secular as their next-door neighbors. No, as they're functional atheists. Because a feature of the modern world, Peter Berger put it like this, we live in a world without windows. Mm. 
in other words, the real world for us is what you can touch, taste, see, weigh, calculate, and so on, what you can approach through the five senses. Whereas what's in the Bible, and for most people in history, even pagans, the unseen world is not unreal. Now, that means my wife and I have a term, the horror of great darkness. You can see it in America, but you can't take it on politically. You have to take it on with supernatural warfare through prayer. And the church is beginning to wake up for that. Now, go to Africa or, say, Korea, and they pray like anything. Now, the American church is beginning to rediscover prayer, but many American Christians are functional atheists. We've lost the biblical worldview. Yeah. You've laid out three different paths for the future. Uh, you, revolution, coup, or homecoming. Can you explain what you, each one of those means and, and how we pursue what would be the, the best path? Well, it's actually a revolution oligarchy and homecoming, but oh, revolution okay. we've talked about, the radical left. And I, I say revolution has never succeeded. The oppression has never ended. Christians, wake up. Please, Lord, no. What do I mean by oligarchy? Well, you can see, in, ironically, one of Trump's greatest contributions is that the disgust of him, the disdain for him, and the approach, the attempts to remove him have highlighted the emergence of a ruling class that's called the technocracy, the rule of experts, and so on. And you can see America shifted from a democracy to an oligarchy, the rule of the excellent few, and that's extremely dangerous. And I would mm -hmm. say again, please, Lord, no. What's homecoming? Well, you all use the phrase going back to your alma mater in the autumn and so on. That's not what I mean. The biblical word repentance, we know the Greek meaning, metanoia, an about turn of heart and mind. But many Christians don't realize the Hebrew word, teshuvah. And teshuvah means an about turn of heart and mind, a turning around, but it also means homecoming. In other words, sin and going wrong are alienation and exile. We're lost. And to come back to the Lord and to truth and his ways is homecoming. That's what America needs in a profound sense. But we need leadership at every level calling America home. So the trouble is a lot of Christian action today is addressing the divisions and attacking them. And we should address what's wrong, no question, critical race theory and so on. But we should do so calling people back to the best of the American experiment and healing the divisions and calling for a way of going forward. Absolutely. What kind of, uh, so you mentioned uh, an oligarchy, which I think more people have woken up to, and I, and I would certainly agree with that. And I think that's something that I have become far, far more aware of in the past couple of years. If there were a, a Christian homecoming that then changed the culture and then downstream from the culture changed politics, uh, would it change the oligarchy? How would our politics change downstream from a Christian homecoming? Well, in the biblical way, leaders serve the people. So an oligarchy is unthinkable. But you've got to get people who are capable of self-government. Take, say, the most famous American statement about democracy. It's undoubtedly Lincoln. 
in the Gettysburg Address. You know, democracy, the government of the people, by the people, for the people. Many Americans don't realize it's a double quotation. Lincoln is quoting Theodore Parker, the Boston preacher, who talked about government of all the people, by all the people, for all the people. He put the stress on the all because he was attacking slavery. He wanted everyone included. But actually, the quotation goes back far earlier still. And believe it or not, the original is from John Wycliffe. Hmm. And in Wycliffe's introduction to the Bible in English, he says, in effect, when everyone, not just the priest and the clergy, but everyone, the people too, have the Bible, then you have the foundations for what's possible of government of the people, by the people, for the people. In other words, if people are to be self-governing, there are things they require, and the Bible gives it to them. I love that. So, yeah. King, our contribution to so many of the key crises is rich, and we've got to explore these things and move out with confidence. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know that there's a, a lot of young leaders listening to this podcast who are uh, church leaders or aspiring church leaders. They're in seminary or in some kind of training program, uh, but then leaders outside the church too. And they're wondering, what are the opportunities for us moving forward? Is there still a chance for us to stand up and change things? If you're going to leave us with, with one last word of um, <clears throat> direction, hope, uh, some steps forward to young leaders today, what would that be? Well, as you know, Aaron, in the book, I argue that Exodus and the scriptures as a whole and the gospel in particular are the once and future key to freedom. In other words, you don't understand the American past at its best unless we understand the 17th century, which is the biblical century, and the rediscovery of notions like the Hebrew Republic and the importance of covenant, which became constitution. So it's the key to understanding the best of the past. But as you explore these truths, you know, with the crisis in the West, with the emergence of totalitarian China, and with singularity in the wings, this is an amazing moment for humanity. And the profound questions are raised about human dignity, truth, words, freedom, justice, you name it. They're all there in the scripture. They're all there in the gospel. So we've got to get people who understand that and are confident in that and are courageous in going out to speak of it. This is an incredible moment for the gospel and the future of humanity. Well, I agree. And I, and I appreciate your, your optimistic words that come out of your Christian hopeful realism words. for us. <laughs> hopeful. 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 Yes, Absolutely. And, uh, and I agree. And I, and I think that a, a great place for people to start if they want to learn more is your books, uh, any of your books, but especially the ones we talked about today, which would be The Dust of Death and The Magna Carta of Humanity. For anyone who is interested, I'm going to have those linked in the show notes. So you guys go to the description here on YouTube or on uh, whatever podcast you're listening to, click that link to the show notes, and you'll be able to, um, uh, I'll have a few different options of booksellers that you, so you can go and get uh, either one of these books read them, share them with your friends, uh, and you will, uh, it will not be a waste of time. It'll be very, very good use of your time. So, uh, Oz, I just want to thank you so much for joining us again today. 
and uh, for sharing your wisdom for us, for your uh, work that you've done over the decades. Congratulations with the re-release of your book. And uh, I really enjoyed this. So just thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Keep on. God bless. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the